Welcome to the inaugural interview for Tedween Talks, a new show by Tedween Publishing. I'm your host, Kylie Broderick, the managing editor of Tedween. This podcast will explore the concepts and intentions embedded within each of our books, and it will provide an in-depth look at the authors of these books and their expertise. Our intent is to allow readers to receive information about the work directly from the source, which will bypass often rigidly structured written constructs that can inhibit readers from accessing organic reactions and feedback from the authors themselves. With that said, I'd like to welcome our first guest, Sunaina Myra, who authored Gilasso, Palestinian Hip-Hop, Youth Culture, and the Youth Movement. Welcome, Sunaina. Thanks, Kari. I'm so happy to be doing this. So before we start digging into this book, could you give us a sense of what you've been researching? I know that you've had two books that have come out since 2013, right? Yes. Well, actually, they're all related. After this book came out, um, I published um, a monograph called The 9-11 Generation, Youth Rights and Solidarity in the War on Terror is the subtitle. And that was actually an ethnographic study focused on youth activism in South Asian, Arab and Afghan American communities in the Bay Area, looking at the ways in which, you know, young people since 9-11 have engaged in political mobilization against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and also in solidarity with Palestine. So in fact, I was kind of documenting the U.S. end of the youth um, activism I discussed in Jail Oslo, in a sense, looking at the ways in which, you know, young um, Muslim and Arab American um, youth um, have actually tried to organize um, in solidarity with Palestine, uh, the resistance and the repression and backlash that they have faced, um, and the ways in which, you know, their engagement with human rights fails in the case of Palestine. Um, And then the other book that I actually just published, it came out only a couple of months ago, is called Boycott, um, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. And that is actually a very different kind of book for me. It's an analysis of the BDS and specifically academic boycott movement in solidarity with Palestine. And it is an account of my own activism as a BDS organizer, as well as Uh, kind of a documentation of the academic boycott as a social justice movement in the U.S. and the political paradigms it uses. So both these books, in a sense, are related to the research that I did in Palestine on the youth movement, um, you know, during the Arab uprisings. So they're not technically updates of your first book, but they do kind of flesh out some of the themes there. Right, because that was a study that I did in Palestine. These other books are actually based in the U.S., and the book on boycott is not specifically on youth activism, but it is on Palestine solidarity activism. Um, And the book, The 9-11 Generation, is a comparative study of three different groups of youth. So it focused on Arab youth, but also on Afghan and on South Asian American youth. And so my work, you know, over the last couple of decades or more has been as a youth studies scholar. And I've always been interested in the ways in which, you know, um, youth are either seen as apolitical or they're seen as hyperpolitical. And I think we saw this in the context of the Arab uprisings and the real kind of interest and fascination and fetishization of the figure of young activists in that context. And so when I was living in Palestine, you know, I was really, really interested in um, the emergent youth movement at that time in 2011. So would you say that's the major theme and argument of this book, either the hyperpolitization of youth or the lack of politization of youth and really nothing in between? 
Right. I mean, that's a current that's been running throughout all my work, and it's an analysis that carries on into this book as as well. And so the focus of Jill Oslo um, is basically looking at how hip-hop in particular that is produced by Palestinian youth is rethinking the very notion of politics um, in this generation that has come of age since the Oslo Accords of 1993. Um, and, you know, there's been um, a profusion of pol- political hip-hop that has been produced and consumed by Palestinian youth um, in different places, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Jerusalem, inside Israel, and also in the diaspora. And there has been some work on Palestinian hip-hop and, of course, on Arab hip-hop in general. But given the political moment, um, I was put, I was especially interested in the ways in which hip-hop became a site for expressing a new kind of political critique and a challenge to existing national politics in Palestine. And so there were basically three key themes um, in the book um, that I discussed. One was the ways in which young people in Palestine are searching for an alternative politics in the post-Oslo moment. Um, the second was the ways in which they're engaged in a debate over Palestinian um, national identity and cultural authenticity in the context of hip-hop. And the third theme was the politicization of this generation in the context of the Arab revolutions that began in 2011 and also in the context of the youth movement in Palestine, which was actually, I think, less focused on in the larger discussions about the Arab uprisings. So, of course, you just touched on the major arguments of this book, but could um, could you go into how you compiled evidence for this book? how you even arrived at this study in the first place. Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, I was actually living in Palestine um, off and on in 2011 and 2012. And then I was there, um, you know, the 2012 to 2013 academic year through the year. And that was the moment in which um, what came to be called the March 15th um, youth movement erupted inside of Palestine. Um, So in in spring 2011, basically these protests, um, you know, were springing up all over Palestine in the West Bank, in Gaza, inside. Israel by Palestinian youth in solidarity with the Tunisian and then the Egyptian revolutions. And I was there. And so, you know, I was really interested in kind of learning more about what this represented. Um, And as I said, you know, these protests were largely overshadowed by, you know, the larger and more dramatic uprisings happening in the region. Um, And I'm an ethnographer. So the evidence in the book is drawn from my fieldwork. So, you know, I did interviews with young people, with activists, with students, students who were not necessarily involved in the protests, but who shared their reflections and what they meant, um, and also with hip-hop artists, as well as young people who consume hip-hop, as well as the young people who didn't like hip-hop. So I actually did interviews with a range of young Palestinians of different ages and different backgrounds um, in um, the Ramallah area at Birzeit University in the West Bank, as well as in Jerusalem and also in Haifa. Um, And I did this, you know, um, ethnographic work um, between, you know, 2011 and 2013, roughly. So if the Arab uprisings were both somewhat impactful and somewhat unimpactful on what has happened in Palestine, um, if you were to update this book for all the events that have happened since 2013, Um, What would you incorporate? How would you talk about the Arab uprisings? Would you even talk about the Arab uprisings? 
That's a great question because, you know, when I'm following it from afar, I haven't had the good fortune to be able to visit Palestine since then, largely because of the BDS travel ban, which makes it probably impossible for me to enter. Um, But, you know, kind of following it from a distance, it is really striking how much these kinds of um, non-party-based political protests by youth have erupted inside Palestine. I mean, we've had major waves of so-called spontaneous protests erupting in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become an epicenter of a lot of the political resistance, as well as in Bethlehem. And we've had major repression, um, you know, by the Israeli military and by settlers and by vigilantes against young people. So there was the wave of the, um, you know, so-called stabbing, um, you know, attacks by young people. There have been waves of, um, you know, protests, um, uh, also involving, you know, kind of ongoing activism against the wall and settlements. And most recently, there's been the, you know, really um, uh, uh, sort of dramatic um, and also sensationalized case of Ahit Tamimi, the um, 17-year-old young woman from Nabi Saleh, who was arrested along with many members of her family who've been brutalized and shot and incarcerated over the years. And I think that's just kind of the climax, in a sense, for many people um, outside of Palestine witnessing the ways in which this post-Oslo generation of young people is rejecting both the um, political factions um, in Palestine, given that a lot of these protests are not affiliated with a particular political faction, the ways in which they're challenging the rule of the Palestinian Authority, as well as the Hamas regime in Gaza, and the ways in which they're actually, I think, expressing a rejection of the Oslo paradigm period. And so I think that the argument in the book still holds. And if anything, I think the protests that have spiraled out since then and are recurrent show the incredible frustration that young Palestinians have with this um, Oslo framework. So it's clear that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has taken on some new dimensions, um, especially online with the rising popularity of maybe Twitter hashtags such as hashtag free ahead to Mimi and hashtag BDS. But given that it's probably still true that um, youth are either hyper-politicized or deeply unpoliticized, do you think it's still true that they're searching for an alternative politic? And are they still using hip-hop as the way to accomplish that? You mentioned at the the end of the book that there there was some ambient fear among some of the members that it might become too cool and maybe not subversive enough to protest through these mechanisms— Do you think that's still developmentally true? Do you think that that's still kind of influencing the way that they express themselves? Um, And do you think that will change over time? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that's really striking to me about the observation that you just made from that last chapter, and I think it's a very important one, um, is that Palestinian, um, you know, activists and young Palestinian artists are extremely self-critical and self-conscious about their deployment of different artistic and cultural forms for resistance. And the fact that a young person could say while engaging in these very, you know, kind of protests that involve, you know, graffiti and different forms of kind of musical experimentation that this is actually not the end game, that the end point cannot be, you know, just having new forms of, you know, sort of cultural politics for the sake of them, um, you know, sort of suggested to me, really indicated to me the level of sophistication and self-critique of these young people. And, And I think that is the predicament. It's like, you know, everything has been tried before in Palestine. Armed struggle has been tried. Civil disobedience has been tried. You know, appealing to the international community has been tried. And so by now, I mean, you know, what's happening is not necessarily new. It's like every generation in Palestine 
to stride something. But I think the significance of Jeel Oslo, and I just want to dwell on that for a minute because I think that's very that's something very specific to this moment and to the framework that has also been imported into hip hop, is that they are rejecting um, the sanctioned kind of political discourse and framework for national politics that suggests that they can only be a two-state solution, that it means compromising on the right of return of refugees and on the rights you know, to full equality of Palestinian citizens of Israel, and that it means partitioning Palestine and giving up on Jerusalem. All of these, um, you know, sort of like concessions that have been extracted from the Palestinian national leadership in Oslo are being rejected. And so I think what's very important is that, in fact, the term conflict does not do justice to what's happening in Palestine. This is also a term that's considered acceptable, you know, in the U.S. But I think what's been so transformative in the last few years and with the youth movement is they don't see it necessarily as just a military conflict. They see it as a problem of colonization. And I think the discourse, um, you know, has increasingly shifted to viewing this as a problem of national oppression and of colonization and apartheid. And so I think what has been really striking is the ways in which hip-hop artists were part of the political movement that was trying to reframe that discourse as part of, you know, a kind of larger left critique in Palestine of these terms um, and of the kind of selling out um, of Palestine. Um, and I think the second thing to be really emphasized, Kylie, is the ways in which, um, you know, again, the youth movement activists um, of whom hip hop artists were a segment have insisted on the unification of the Palestinian national body, that Palestine is not just the West Bank and Gaza, as, we, as, as many people here in the U.S. also have come to believe and have accepted, that Palestine has to include also the Palestinian community inside Israel, the so-called 48 Palestinians, and the refugees in the diaspora. So one of the slogans um, of these young activists is 48 plus, the root of 48 plus 67 equals one. Which means that, you know, the kind of uh, root um, identity for Palestinians inside Israel, for those in the West Bank and Gaza, the, uh, the occup occupied territories since 1967 is one unified Palestine. So do you think with the rise of accessible video sharing websites like YouTube and others that have just really exploded over the past decade, um, that they are evidence of an increasingly connected generation of Palestinian youth, this post-Oslo generation, um, because they could potentially film any act, any subversive act, and share it with um, everyone in the diaspora, Gazans, or West Bankers. Exactly. I mean, that has is, is, is exactly what's been happening for a while. And I think given that, you know, Palestinians have faced, um, you know, a travel ban and have been under lockdown for so long and often couldn't get out, what's been happening for many years is that it has been an underground musical form that has been disseminated, um, you know, through videos, YouTube, other social media sites, and that has only expanded. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the, um, you know, uh, documentaries that I think is most powerful about Palestine in general is Slingshot Hip Hop, which is a film that actually chronicles, um, in a sense, the emergence of the Palestinian hip hop movement um, and the group Dam, which is from 48 Palestine, from um, inside Israel. And one of the really poignant parts of the film, um, one of the aspects is that, you know, Palestinian rappers uh, from different parts of Palestine are unable to meet for this hip hop concert. And, you know, so they end up, you know, talking to one another, Skyping one another. And so they have to use digital media in order to cross these borders. 
cultures. And I think that has been the appeal of hip hop as an, as an underground form, as a form that young people have always engaged with through digital media. It's allowed Palestinians who are trapped inside, um, you know, these borders to reach the larger community. Do you think today that Ramallah still poses as a unique artistic center in Palestine and a unique artistic space for your research in this book? Um, you mentioned in the book that it experiences a kind of separate colonial experience in the rest of Palestine. The Ramallah bubble is what you call it in, in the book. Um, given that, would it still be a crucial source of research for you if you were to make this book again to update it with the times? Is that where you would go? Is that where your primary research site would be? Right. I mean, it is. And I think it, it, uh, it is because there are also all these contradictions about the Ramallah bubble, as you noticed. And one of the issues is that, you know, Ramallah being the de facto capital of Palestine, which is a country that doesn't have a sovereign state, um, is also a very controversial and also a very exclusionary space. And so I talk in the book, you know, as you know, about the ways in which, you know, Ramallah encapsulates for many people everything that is wrong with the Palestinian condition since Oslo, which is, you know, you have, you know, um, an extremely expensive city where the real estate prices actually and the prices of coffees and teas and chic cafes rival those of San Francisco in the Bay Area where I live. Um, you have, you know, this really um, strikingly polarized um, class um, hierarchy and the class divide, which has really widened as well. You have, um, you know, acute unemployment. Um, and then you have different groups um, of Palestinians coming to Ramallah to try to find work because, you know, unemployment is so high. And the main sources of uh, employment being um, the Palestinian Authority, the PA and NGOs are all concentrated in Ramallah. But, you know, Ramallah is not necessarily the artistic center of Palestine. So there's a great deal of pushback, as I document in the book from Palestinian artists who really reject this idea idea that it is the cultural capital of Palestine. I mean, there, there are lots of resources that are poured into Ramallah. And so there are events and there are, you know, kind of programs that happen there that don't happen in other parts of Palestine. But I think one of the major critiques of the youth movement um, is to connect with youth from all across Palestine and not assume that Ramallah is Palestine. I think that's a problem that many people um, really feel um, uh, is is something that needs to be, you know, kind of ruptured. And so also connecting with youth in Haifa um, inside 48 Palestine. Actually, Palestinian hip-hop is not indelibly associated with Ramallah. It began in 48 Palestine in Lid, which is this... Um, you know, uh, urban area um, near Tel Aviv where the dam artists are from. So it's not necessarily the pioneering center of hip hop. It happens to be um, a place which has a lot of resources, but also encapsulates all the paradoxes of what is happening in Palestine currently. So I'm not sure if this is a relevant question to ask you, so feel free to push back on it. But how do you think, if at all, the current Gaza electricity shortage and crisis is going to affect cultural production? We haven't really seen the full uh, ramifications of the crisis yet, but it must have some effect on art and specifically hip hop production, which has historically been the site of um, social resistance, as you've noted in the book. Yeah, no, I actually think that's a very interesting question, Kyrie. And I, I was thinking, um, I mean, it's something that, you know, I would love to be able to sort of think um, about over a period of time. But, you know, my immediate response to it is I think it's actually one symptom of the larger strangulation 
of Gaza and the kind of deeper politics of elimination, basically, of people in Gaza by the Israeli state. I mean, there's there's long been a humanitarian siege that's been going on in Gaza. And so the kind of massive and intensified electricity cuts and shortage crisis are just extending um, the existing crisis. They're just amping up this kind of strangulation and starvation and kind of slow wearing down of the Gazan population who are trapped and who can't leave in any case. And so I think that, you know, for me, you know, it's not just about hip hop, it's about, you know, the ways in which, you know, Israel, you know, as a settler colonial regime is based on a politics of annihilation. And I think increasingly, you know, people um, in Palestine studies in the Western Academy and in other places have acknowledged that, that, you know, it's not a big, the, the, the peace negotiations, of course, are a complete farce, and they failed repeatedly. Um, but also understanding that, you know, um, Israel has full impunity to use different strategies of violence. Um, and in the case of Gaza, it's this starvation diet, which means, you know, seeding the land, air and sea borders, giving people just minimal amounts of food so that they'll starve, but that they won't die en masse, um, bombing them as they're doing just recently last week with airstrikes again um, in Gaza. Um, but at the same time, you shouldn't lose focus um, on the ways in which this is also happening in other parts of Palestine, that there is this kind of slow death and kind of wearing down um, of people's morale and psyche so that um, people just, you know, young people end up feeling so hopeless that they they take a knife and they run out into the streets because there's no life that they can imagine living that's worth it. So for people who want to learn more about this subject but perhaps haven't read a lot of literature or watched a lot of videos on the subject of Palestinian hip-hop or the post-also generation, where would you point them to go? You know, there's so much now, you know, particularly on social media and on digital media, as we were saying. I mean, I feel like every time I look and browse, there are more kind of YouTube documentaries that people could check. I still feel like Slingshot Hip Hop is a really excellent film because in a way, I sort of feel it's a Palestine 101 told through the story of hip hop. And I think that's really interesting, like particularly for my students, college students. I mean, I think it's just a really compelling medium through which to understand what's happening in Palestine by, you know, looking at the lives of these young Palestinian rappers, these young men and women. There's also another documentary called Checkpoint Rock, um, which might be a little dated by now, but what I like about it is it actually situates Palestinian hip-hop in um, the context of other genres of Palestinian music. So it doesn't kind of exceptionalize it. It shows how it's actually related to other kinds of improvisational music in Palestine. And then there are just a ton of hip-hop videos, you know, that keep proliferating. Um, for example, I think um, Meena Habi, um, who's the terrorist, which was the early damn um, hip-hop kind of anthem, uh, which is still very popular, um, was had a wonderful um, a music video produced Produced by Jackie Saloom, who went on to direct um, the, the, the film Slingshot Hip Hop. Um, I think that's a film a video that people can Google on YouTube and watch as well, you know? Yeah, you know, uh, film has become a really important pedagogical material over the years, especially since a lot of it is free of charge through YouTube or other video sharing websites. So for subjects like this, which are inherently um, resisting capitalist pressures, it's actually a really cool medium to communicate these types of lessons. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like, you know, when, when when students sometimes tell me that, you know, they don't know what's going on or when people tell me, oh, it's so complicated, Palestine, Israel, that's so complicated. You know, that's why it can't ever be solved. I'm like, 
Mm, you know, actually, there's so much information out there by now that there's no real, I mean, the, the excuse for ignorance has begun to dissolve Definitely. because it's, it's fingertips if they wanted to. And, you know, I think that that is what is, I think, accompanied this whole, you know, kind of transformation in the U.S. and the kind of opening up of the discourse around Palestine, where people are being much more kind of critical and well-informed than they were before, because all this information is now more easily um, accessible, even if, you know, I think there's still a great deal of, you know, pushback and backlash and, you know, harassment and so on. Yeah, it's true. Visual knowledge is a lot easier to consume nowadays. Uh, what with it being prolific on social media and other popular websites, which I think is of great benefit to your book, honestly, because it deals a lot with the physical and visual effects of music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to mention that there are a lot of links um, in the book as well, you know, to um, videos. And of course, you know, if you Google them, you'll find others. And I also just want to kind of pick up on this point that um, you've mentioned also before, Kylie, about the free Ahit Tamimi campaign. I think what was has been so powerful about, you know, the flyers and the posters that have been part of the campaign is this image, you know, of a very simple one of a young woman, you know, with her long tresses, you know, just sort of fighting back against an Israeli soldier. I think that simple image has said so much because it kind of sums up the injustice of the situation, you know, a young unarmed girl. And, you know, there's so much kind of sympathy and attention right now on young women and violence against young women. I think it really resonates with people also in the hashtag MeToo moment, um, you know, of this idea of kind of fighting back against different forms of assault um, of girls and women. And then you have this, you know, heavily armed soldier. And if you start digging more online, you'll find out that, you know, much of the arm weaponry used by Israeli soldiers is from the United States um, and funded by the United States. And so it just kind of opens up I think, a whole kind of discussion about, um, you know, the kind of uh, injustice and oppression that's happening there through that, you know, one flyer or, or picture. Definitely. And I think that's really only going to become more relevant over time. Well, I think we're going to wrap up now. Thank you so much, Sunena. Do you have any other things to say about the book or subjects relevant to the book before we go? Um, you know, I'll just say that I, I, for me, this book was such a pleasure to work on because the young people that I interviewed for this book um, were so incredibly smart. And, you know, I'm not saying that to be patronizing, you know, or tokenistic. I mean, I really feel that it's their insights and their argument that carry the thread of this book. And at the same time, I just want to acknowledge that so many of them have paid the price for this activism. And some of the people I interviewed have been in jail since then or in and out of jail. Um, so one of the young activists, um, friends with some of the people I interviewed was was murdered, um, kind of you know, hunted down um, in captivity. And so there's also a real kind of pain that um, went along with the pleasure of producing this book. Thanks so much. I'm gonna read a portion of the final chapter here for our listeners. That should hopefully give a feel for the book and give context for our conversation here today. This is why the vignette about Babel Shams and the resistance villages with which I began this book is so compelling, as well as the youth camp in the depopulated village of Ikrit, because these dramatic actions highlight the imagination of what habitation on the land might look like if a different kind of sovereignty were achieved in Palestine. Rather than focusing on solely the issue of the state and organizing based on traditional party affiliations, Palestinians from different locations created Bab al-Shams, a new village, named from a novel that told the story of Palestine as return, 
enacting resistance to the colonial present and ongoing Nakba. For Hafez, Bab al-Shams was a form of peaceful resistance, which may have been staged for a global media, but it was still important because it was a collective movement of people from different places that went beyond the problems of a single village and included people who were not, conventionally speaking, activists. It was also an exercise in democratic political life, for the dictum was that whoever is part of the village can decide what happens in the village. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Sanana. You can find this book and all others from Tedween at tedweenpublishing.com. ببلش من البيت الأبيض محلي عم بيعتم العالم عم بيغطي بغيم الأسود طيارات صلبية صهيونية مهيمنة على العالم شبح الإمبريالية حوش مخفية بقناع العدل والديمقراطية جات الدخل فيك وفي جات الدخل فيي أي عم بحكي عن هاي الشخصيات اللي البشر جواتها مات مثلا